Ontario voters are heading to the poll next month. Who are the contenders and what are the top issues? I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. So it is now election time in Ontario. The writs were all drawn up. They were drawn up last week, and the election hearing is officially underway. We're hearing from the candidates. We have Doug Ford with the Conservatives looking to regain or maintain their uh, Conservative majority government. And uh, the NDP and the Liberals are sort of neck and neck in trying to catch them. We're also just days away from learning the results of the United Conservative Party leadership review in Alberta. We're going to find out whether Jason Kenney will remain on as leader and remain on as premier of that province. And we're also in the midst of a very hotly contested leadership race for the Conservative Party of Canada. So who better than uh, Hamish Marshall to join the show to talk about all of these various elections. Hamish is a partner at One Persuades, which is a government relations and strategy firm based in Ontario in 2019. Hamish served as the Conservative Party's national campaign manager, and he ran Andrew Shear's winning leadership campaign. Prior to that, Hamish worked for Stephen Harper as his manager of strategic planning and a pollster during the successful 2008 federal election. And finally, back in 2021, during the federal election, Hamish worked for us here at True North as our in-house pollster. So Hamish, thank you so much for joining the show. It's great to have you back. It's great to be here, Candice. It's fun. Okay, so let's talk about Ontario. So, you know, we're now on, have this election underway. It seems like Doug Ford is in a good position to maintain his election. If you look at the polls, it looks like he's up by anywhere between three and eight percent in the polls, which is a pretty solid lead. So uh, what what do you make of the election so far? What is the sort of main issue that is driving the vote in Ontario? Well, right now, it's a bit of a snoozer election. Um, not a lot's happened thus far. And I think that's, frankly, the way the, uh, the PCs uh, like it. I mean, I think uh, Doug Ford's running on his record. Uh, he's arguing it's not a time for change. Um, and having a very exciting election does not seem to work with that. So you want to he wants to emphasize continuity and change and things are things are fine. Um, and as you say, he's got a lead, uh, various uh, polling company to polling companies, but he's got a significant lead. And the, the consensus is that he's on track for another majority government. Although, as we, we've got the first um, debate uh, and uh, things can change uh, as well, uh, we see over the time where, and where we have been seeing is a little bit of, um, of growth in people warming a little bit to Stephen Del Duca, the liberal leader, which is uh, which is makes things a little more interesting. Right. Well, he, he's sort of relatively unknown in, in the province. Um, and some of the things I've heard from him have been, I, I think, a little alarming, a little offside. I know he made a pledge that he would add COVID requirements for students in school, making it part of the mandatory uh, vaccine requirements for kids coming to public schools. And, and I think that's still a pretty divisive, uh, polarizing issue, whether or not to vaccinate little kids, um, what the benefits are for that outweighing, whether they outweigh COVID, which doesn't really affect kids. Uh, do you think COVID, you know, COVID vaccines, the, the the reaction to COVID, the way that Premier Ford has handled the COVID crisis, is, is that going to be sort of the major issue in the election or is, or is it something else? Uh, you know, I think the Liberals and the NDP are going to try to argue that that COVID was mishandled by Ford. I think one of the reasons why Ford's still in, on track for majority government is that the general consensus, certainly amongst uh, conservative accessible voters, is that the handling of COVID was probably about was probably fine. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean they're okay with everything, every decision that was made, but generally speaking, they're okay. Um, so I, I think it's going to be very difficult in this 
springtime election to make the case as, as COVID numbers continue to drop to make the case that handling of COVID is going to be the determining factor. Uh, and, and I think that it would be much easier for Liberals and NDP um, if we were in an environment where COVID cases were, were rising, perhaps, um, you know, if the election had been held last fall or something like that, when we were coming into uh, whichever wave it was then. Right. Well, I, I think that there is still, there are still people in Ontario that are very concerned with COVID, people that were very unhappy with the lifting of restrictions. Hamish, it seemed to me that in the beginning part of Doug Ford's premiership, he faced a lot of criticism from the media. There were a lot of protests. There was a lot of anger at sort of another conservative government. And they were sort of making it out to be this really boogeyman that was going to like cut all our services and, and, and get rid of all these unions. Uh, that didn't happen. And it seems that, the, that that kind of criticism has really gone away, um, that 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 the, the sort of centrist sort of base of the party and base of the of the province is, is actually pretty happy with with Ford and the way that he managed things the the, the sort of most uh, the biggest criticism that I see uh, comes from the political right uh, people who are very unhappy with the lockdowns people who uh, didn't like the fact that uh, Doug Ford wouldn't engage in some of the culture issues like he was very quick to denounce the truckers he didn't provide any support or any compassion any empathy any understanding of them, we saw this really very ideologically left-wing um, CRT, critical race theory, uh, proposal coming from the Department of Education, um, really pushing the sort of worst of the worst of the woke ideology. Uh, do, do you think that, that Ford faces the risk of sort of losing the base of the conservative party and, and sort of not being able to motivate his conservative base to show up for him? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that's always a concern when you're in government. You have to make compromises. I, I think I think his approach to that is going to be to raise the threat of the Liberals and the NDP, and he's going to say to these voters, you know, you might not be enthusiastic with every choice that I made, but uh, these guys are going to be a whole lot worse. And, you know, the point you made about Del Duca talking about mandatory vaccines for all school-aged kids, well, anybody who thinks that the vaccine mandates have gone too far, Doug Ford simply has to say, I'm not for that. That, that is too far for me. That's, you know, it's that Del Duca wants to do that. And what are people going to do? Uh, they're going to, you know, vote for the. They're going to vote for. They'll rather see Ford in power than uh, than uh, than Del Duca. I think it is. And the other interesting thing that's happened is that there's a whole bunch of these sort of other small splinter parties on the right. Um, you know, there's a bunch of MPPs that have, that have left his caucus for a variety of reasons. Some of them related to this, and some of them have started new parties. There's, I believe, the True Blue Party that Carrie Helios has started. Um, there's a sort of a provincial version of the PPC. But because they've, they've all splintered and there's, there's multiple of these parties, there isn't a single focus for uh, that feeling. There's no leader who can get into the debate. You know, if all those, those MPPs had sort of joined together and said, we're all together in one caucus and we're running with one party that's going to have 120 candidates on an on a anti-vaccine uh, mandate uh, platform, they can make the case, well, we've got a couple of MPPs or three or four MPPs, and therefore we should have our leader in the debate. And they could really have been there to, to perhaps siphon off some of that support. But I think with this splintered environment, we've got two or three of these little parties plus some independents. There's no singular focus for that, 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 for that sentiment. And uh, Ford's the big winner because of that. That's a, that's a really good point. And I'm just wondering, I don't know if this is too into the weeds, but 
Why is it that the, the, the sort of anti-establishment conservatives, people who didn't like the lockdowns, people who didn't like the handling of COVID, why, why do you think they're so disorganized? Why, why, why aren't they united uh, with a singular focus in, in the way that we see single-issue parties on the left, like the Green Party? Uh, why, why do you think that these parties don't do as well on the right? Well, I think, I think typically if you're, if you're a libertarian party who, who um, wants to engage in these sort of debates, there's the, the appeal of, have, of, of following and making compromises with other parties that maybe you agree with them on 98% of things. These are people who have split away and they're, they have a sort of splittish mentality. They're going to do their own thing. And uh, if they were in favor of consolidation, they, many of them would have stayed with inside the Ontario PC party. Um, you know, same thing we saw federally with, you know, Derek Sloan not joining the PPC, but going and doing his own thing. Um, and if you people have a, a sort of a splittist individualist ide- ideology, that's going to continue through into how they, they, um, they organize a party. And it's perhaps one of the reasons why the Liber- party, Libertarian Party of Canada has never had a breakthrough and why there's no anarchist party. Anarchists are very bad at organizing things. And while these people aren't anarchists, they um, generally are... Uh, you know, they, they, have, they have their own specific views on things and don't want to um, compromise in any way, shape or form. Compromise is why they left the big parties. Right. That, no, that makes total sense. OK, well, I, I'm just wondering, quick question. What, what, what do you think Doug Ford has to do to maintain his majority? What, what, what is his strategy in this campaign? What does he have to do for the last three, three or four weeks here to, in order to win? He's got to keep um, people who are broadly happy with his government on side. He's got to, and most importantly, he has to try to keep the Liberal and NDP vote split. You know, right now, the, the, the Liberals, it depends on the pollster, Liberals seem to be pulling away a little bit from the NDP. But, you know, the dream scenario for Ford is that, you know, he gets sort of somewhere in the high 30s, 38, 39% of the vote, and the Liberals and NDP each get like 26, 27%, something like that. That kind of split produce a very nice, large, large uh, Ford majority. Um, the, where it gets a little more difficult is there's consolidation on the left, whereas if, if either uh, Horvath or uh, Del Duca can become the anti-Doug Ford candidate and um, consolidate that vote, um, that's when it starts getting a lot of, uh, of, of seats begin to start falling at that point, and it comes a little more uh, tight um, for, uh, for Doug Ford. It's interesting to note that Del Duca seems to be wise to this. He's already been campaigning in a whole bunch of, liberal, of NDP-held seats. Uh, and is trying to uh, pick up those seats on, on his road back. And he seems to be pulling away a little bit. And I've noticed NDP strategists whining on Twitter that how dare he can campaign in NDP seats. They should be focused on taking out Doug Ford. And, and you know, Del Duca is doing what's best for him as opposed to what's best for the NDP. Um, not a surprise to really anybody but NDP strategists. It sort of it kind of reminds me of the 2015 federal election where you had Har- Harper was sort of had a pretty comfortable lead and, and the liberals and the NDP were sort of splitting the opposition vote and neither Trudeau or Thomas Mulcair, leader of the NDP at the time, were were, were really presenting themselves as, as a sort of premier and wait, or prime minister in waiting. And then all of a sudden at some point, Thomas uh, Thomas Mulcair sort of misstepped. I think it was to do with uh, hijabs and niqabs in Quebec, and 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 just sort of his support caved all of a sudden, like mid, midway through the election. Uh, Quebecers sort of turned on him, and Justin Trudeau was able to ride that wave. Do, do you foresee anything like that uh, happening? I know I know Andrea Horvath is. This is what her fourth time running for uh, the NDP. She's pretty uh, stable hand, but Del Duca is pretty new at this. So uh, what, what what do you think about that? Well, I think I think I think the big difference is this isn't a change election. There isn't an overwhelming desire for change. And you know, in 2015, I think 
the election came out sort of an audition between Trudeau and Mulcair about who most looked like change. And Mulcair ran a bit to the center to try to soften some of those NDP hard edges and looked um, not different enough. And, you know, Trudeau, young and vibrant with a, with a platform that was really throwing some hand grenades and doing some things that were quite bold, looked like change and captured that vote. You know, and I think we're trying to see that with Del Duca now. Del Duca has, um, you know, not a lot is punching through. I haven't seen a lot of policy punch through in the last a week, last 10 days of the campaign. Um, it's not it's not getting into the public. The only thing that I've seen really punch through has been Del Duca's promise to make uh, all transit fares $1 everywhere in Ontario for, I think it's two years, um, which is a bold policy. I mean, it's going to cost a, an arm and a leg and it's, it's. Uh, I mean, this includes even go train fares. So it's, it's a huge, massive uh, increase in subsidy, but it is, it has punched through a little bit. So he's trying to do that. But again, they're fighting against a problem where they're still having to make the case for change. You know, after government's been in power eight or 10 years, you don't really have to convince people it's time for a change. People just believe that and you're fighting over who's going to be the change agent. Right now, both the Liberals and the NDP are trying to say we have to change and um, we're the best method for that, which is which is just a tougher argument to make. And Ford really profits from most people saying, yeah, things are things are things are pretty good. Things are fine. Good enough. Right. Wait, right, let's move on to Alberta. So we're about a week away here from, I think I think we're about a week away from, from learning the results of the leadership. I know they've changed it a few times, but I believe it's coming down next week. So interesting, I was in Calgary last week and I didn't really hear a lot of people grumbling about Kenny. I heard a lot of people who were pretty happy with Kenny and pretty supportive. I think it perhaps correlates with a stronger economy, higher price of oil. But I wanted to get your thoughts on the leadership review and uh, what you expect from that uh, from that vote. Sure. I mean, I, I think I think just if you compare this to say six months ago, I think two fundamental things have happened for Kenny. Number one is that overall the UCP's um, polling against the NDP has situation has dramatically improved. Six months ago, it looked like uh, Kenny-led UCP would be defeated by the NDP. And that was driving a lot of desire for change, as you can imagine. Um, now, it looks like a fight, at, and some polls actually have them ahead. So we're looking like it's a very tight fight, but there's clearly a path to victory for Kenny-led UCP. The other thing that's happened is that, um, you know, with various people announcing that they will run for leader uh, if Kenny is defeated in this, it's no longer Kenny versus anybody's sort of dream perfect leader. You know, it's, you don't like Kenny and who's the person after it. You can be anybody you want. You can imagine the, the ghost of Ralph Klein or whomever it is um, to come back and they will be the, the dream candidate. Um, now with uh, Brian Jean saying he's going to run and, and um, uh, Danielle Smith saying she's going to run, you know, like Brian and, and Danielle both have many things that are positive about them, but they're not perfect people. They have negatives. And now it's Kenny versus somebody else who is not a perfect dream candidate. Those things are working. The other thing that's happened, I think, for Kenny with a chunk uh, is that some of the anti-Kenny forces really overplayed their hand. And there's a group of people now who are saying, if those types of people are attacking Kenny, maybe I'm more for him now. Um, so I think the situation is, has radically evolved and his decision to put off um, this vote until the spring is looking like a very, very good one. Moving to the mail-in ballot, uh, I think was the right one to do. Uh, the the in-person convention would have had so many people, it would have been absolute pandemonium. Um, and a mail-in ballot, I think, seems like uh, the best uh, the best option. So I think what he's done is done very reasonably well. And, and as to your point, the economy has improved a lot putting him in a better position. 
So I, I, I have heard criticism sort of from both sides. Some people say that uh, Kenny, part of the problem is that there is these few dissenting MLAs who, who are very unhappy with Kenny, and Kenny's kind of given them too long of a rope to voice their complaints and, and to, you know, voice their dissatisfaction, kind of giving them too much freedom. Um, you know, he should have had more party discipline and booted those. Uh, uh, others say that, you know, he's muzzling his, his backbench and that he's not providing them the right opportunities uh, to have their input. Do you think there's a bigger problem, uh, you know, even if Kenny does survive this leadership race, which it looks like he will uh, handily, but do you think that uh, he, he, he has a problem just in terms of keeping this United Conservative Party united, um, ensuring that sort of the backbench or rural MLAs or, or, or rural Albertans who, who don't feel that Kenny's done a good enough job with the pandemic and, and you know, the, 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 he's made a lot of mistakes that aren't being addressed. Uh, h- how do you think uh, Kenny can keep this big, big tent, big party together? Well, number one, I think keeping uh, MLAs out of caucus is a very serious thing and should be done only in extreme circumstances. And I think Kenny was right not to kick them all out. Kicking them all out could have formed a wrong caucus, could have given the, the reborn uh, Wild Rose, I think it's now the Wild Rose Independence Party, um, you know, maybe they could have joined that, they could have created something new um, that would have been a focus for anti-Kenny opposition. By putting everything through this leadership vote, he can now say to the caucus members, put up or shut up. You know, if after, you know, assuming he wins the leadership vote, he can say to any caucus members, you had your choice, you went and signed up people, the membership voted, the membership decided, I'm still the leader, I'm still the premier. I'm giving you one last chance. If you're on board now, fantastic. You can be a candidate next year. Let's move forward. But if you're not right now, it's time. The time's time come for the parting of the ways. And I think he will be able to position anybody who um, wants, still wants him gone after a successful leadership review is not respecting the will of the membership and therefore removing them as, a, as an MLA, as a candidate for the next election is entirely justified. So I think, yeah, he's given them some rope. He's, he certainly enhanced their criticisms. Um, but, you know, if he pulls off a significant win uh, in this leadership, it gives him a much, much a leadership review, much, much stronger uh, hand. And he'll be in a very good position to tell them to get on board or to leave. Interesting. Uh, yeah, I think that's a very good strategy and uh, probably very likely how it will play out, Hamish. I want to, while I have you online, I want to ask you about the conservative race, because as you know, I moderated the debate last Thursday. It was really fun. Great opportunity to sort of get to know each of the candidates a little better. Unfortunately, Patrick Brown uh, was a no-show, but we did get to know uh, some of the other candidates. Uh, so I'm just wondering, I, I'm um, you know, what, what, what's your take on the leadership race? Uh, how do you think it's going so far? Well, full disclosure, I'm, I'm supporting um, uh, Pierre Polyev and actively uh, helping him on his campaign. So, and these remarks re- represent my my views, not the campaigns. Um, so take them all. If you're not, if you're not a Pierre fan, take this all as a, perhaps a biased perspective, but that's, uh, that's where I am. Um, yeah, I agree. I think the debate was a lot of fun. I think we got to see who everybody was, um, what was important to them. And, and, uh, you know, what I look for in debates is surprises, you know, people performing about what the way I expect or the way they've performed in the past isn't news. It's what's different, what new things do we learn? Um, and, you know, I think, uh, I, I think we, you know, the thing that struck me that was really new was that was um, that how angry John Shrey was. I was surprised by that. I didn't expect him to be angry, but he seemed um, really maddened uh, to have to share the stage with some of the candidates. And, you know, that was, I think, very disappointing uh, from my perspective. 
I, I, I didn't see it as anger. I saw it as passion. I, I heard him make some very passionate pleas that he, you know, he loves Canada and he supports it. I know that there were a couple of things that he said that did not go over well in the room. At one point he said that he thought that the trucker convoy was illegal and that got him a, a whole room full of booze. It was interesting to me because Roman Babber, who, you know, he's a provincial uh, MPP in Ontario, he was one of the ones that we were just talking about that got uh, kicked out of Doug Ford's caucus and uh, went, went as an independent. Uh, he was really resonating with a room full of conservative sort of activists and insiders. And, I, 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 you know, obviously the, a lot of people support Pierre because he's got the momentum and he's charismatic and he's been on the ground sort of fighting against the Trudeau government all, every step of the way since Trudeau was elected. Uh, but but I, I, was, I was a little bit surprised by how much uh, Babber's message resonated with um, conservatives. Um, do, do you think that the, that the, that this this issue, the trucker convoy, the mandates, uh, the sort of pro freedom voice, it, it, do you think that's going to be one of the defining issues of the campaign, or do you think that there's something else that's more important? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a big litmus test. I think I think conservatives are looked. I think at core, uh, conservatives are looking for someone to make them feel good about being conservative. And I don't know anybody who agrees with everything that was said by everybody in the trucker convoy. I don't think that's physically possible. There's lots of people saying all sorts of different things, but. At core, there was a message. There was an, in the Freedom Convoy. It was there was a message of frustration. There was a message that was a huge chunk of, of Canadians. They're not being heard by this government, um, and uh, respecting that, as you know, as as, uh, as Pierre Polyev has done, and, and as Roman Barber has done, um, is very very important. And I think conservatives want to feel good about being conservative again. They don't want to be lectured. They don't want to be told that they're bad Canadians. They don't want to hear that their, their views are somehow out of date and awful, uh, which is what we, you know, while he may not have said that, sometimes he did in so many words, but certainly what was the you know, overall theme of the Aaron O'Toole leadership. And, you know, that's why I think one of the main reasons why I think uh, Parapoliev is winning is he's making conservatives, he's speaking to their hearts, he's making them feel good about themselves and showing a positive vision about how, um, uh, how we can be pro-freedom uh, and be popular. Um, look, I think I think Mr. Bauer did very well. I, I, I didn't have very strong impressions of Roman Bauer before uh, the leadership uh, debate, uh, and I think he, he proved himself to be likable uh, and interesting. And I think you know, for someone like him, who's you know definitely playing catch up compared to the other big contenders, I, I think he did very very well. It's sort of one of the other things that struck me is that, that, that there sort of appears to be uh, a fault line of, of the old split of the party. Like when, when I look at the six candidates, I see Jean Charest, Scott Aitchison, and Patrick Brown, which very much fall in line with the sort of the old school PC progressive or liberal light brand of conservatism that's popular in places like Toronto, Montreal, and Ottawa. Um, and, and, then, and then you have more of the sort of grassroots populism uh, I don't want to say reactionary, but but sort of really in touch with the concerns of everyday Canadians and conservatives, which would be Pierre uh, Polyev, uh, Dr. Lesson Lewis, and Roman Babber. And it sort of worries me a little bit that that wh whichever way this party goes, the other faction of the party won't be satisfied. Like I, ca I can't imagine that Jean Charest and Patrick Brown uh, will line up behind Pierre Polyev if he wins. Um, and likewise, I can't imagine people in Western Canada and people who are very dis dissatisfied with the status quo uh, and with lockdowns uh, saying, okay, I'll, I'll support a Patrick Brown or Jean Charest given, given, their, given their records. Um, is this something that, that concerns you or do you think I'm, I'm sort of being oversensitive to that split? Oh, no, I mean, I think I think there's always there's always a danger of splits. And I think what we, we've seen, you know, the, 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 I always like to say the 
conservative movement is sort of deeply Protestant in character. It's not to say there aren't just Protestants in the conservative movement, but there's sort of a splittist tendency that you know, when things aren't going the way we want, certain factions will break off. And um, I, I think that, um, so I think, I always think there's a danger of it. I, I generally think that, however, though, that we're going into an election where Trudeau will be in power for a decade, liberals in power for a decade, and the tendency for unity in the face of that kind of a, a environment is much, much, much greater. Um, and I think there'll be a strong push for unity, whoever wins afterwards. And, and the Conservative Party has a fairly good record of pulling that together. Um, you know, uh, and especially if we if we have a leader who is sensitive to some of the, the um, mandates concerns, uh, I think even what we'll see is even greater unity with a, with a chunk of um, of PPC voters going back to the conservatives as, as well. I, I think that's right. It's, it was interesting because uh, I think it was Warren Kinsella uh, started calling Pierre Polyev People's Party Pierre, uh, which, which I don't think is that, as big of an insult as, as he thinks it is. Um, but but I, I did find it uh, amusing that I think both uh, Roman Babber and Leslie Lewis took uh, shots at, at Pierre and the federal conservatives for not doing enough to defend the trucker convoy and the uh, and, and, and being anti sort of lockdown mandate enough. So that was an interesting debate. There, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't agree with much that the media said about the debate afterwards, but there was one um, thing that I did, I did agree with. It was written in the hub, which, which is a policy sort of uh, more of a, a wonkish publication, but um, there's sort of co complaints that the debate didn't feature enough big ideas and it wasn't policy oriented enough. And then they didn't really, put down anything in terms of what they believed in and what their vision for Canada was in, in specific ways. Um, do, do you think that's just because it's too early in, in this race? I know we're not going to determine the leader until September, so it's, it's so early, there's so much time. Um, but but do, do you think that the debate and, and the conversation so far has been lacking when it comes to public policy? Um, I, no, I disagree. I think, I think we've seen some interesting public policy proposals around housing prices, around cryptocurrency, um, Mr. Schrape put out a big um, uh, healthcare piece uh, recently. There's been there's been a fair bit, but it's it, it, it's they're all they're all subservient to the overall narrative, which is you know um, the Sheree Brown approach, which says conservatives shouldn't be conservative and they should uh, feel bad about being conservatives. And if only we were just liberals who were good at math, um, everything would be fine. Uh, and then there's um, what Mr. Polyev uh, is showing, which is that, you know, it's okay to be conservative. It's not just okay, it's great to be conservative, to feel and, and to fight for freedom and to um, make people feel that they're part of something that, that is growing. And, and so I see very two very different narratives and all the policy gets assumed by that. You know, we're not, it's a very different race than it was say in 2017, where we had 13 candidates on the stage where people needed um, individual policies to stand out from one another, and it came about that. Here, it's really a, a campaign of big narratives. Do you think that at this point that any of the campaigns are really using a strategy of like, okay, my goal is to get second round votes and I'm going to try to appeal to this person's base? Do, do you think that's part of the strategy game has, has really started to play in yet, or, or do you think it's too early? And then also on that what do you think about Patrick Brown's strategy to not debate, not talk to media, not really engage, uh, kind of stand stand back and, and, and lob grenades while also sort of working uh, with uh, diaspora communities and, and immigrant communities to try to shore up support amongst people who probably have never voted conservative before? Yeah, look, I mean, I think both the Shrey and Brown campaigns have the similar strategy, which is 
you know, do well enough on the first ballot to keep um, uh, Pierre under uh, 50% and then get most of the seconds of the other, right? They're both assuming that, that they will be ahead of, of each other and that they can profit from that and that's their path to victory. Um, so I think that that very much exists uh, on, on that side of things. Um, you know, Mr. Brown has been, has been described as uh, he's running a, uh, a submarine campaign, um, which I think is good. I think he's, you know, I think you're right. He's sort of firing the odd torpedo, but he's generally keeping it under the, under the, uh, under the radar. Um, and he, he's running a campaign very much about signing up people in very specific um, communities. You know, he came out and said that he was in favor of um, taking the Tamil Tigers off the terrorist list. Um, you know, which is an explicit appeal to uh, people who are supporters of Tamil Tigers. Um, he's a he's come out and said, you know, his reporting came out and said that he's uh, against moving the Canadian embassy uh, in uh, in Israel to uh, Jerusalem. Um, he's very much targeting very specific communities, and has explicitly said many times that he's not interested in appealing to the traditional to the traditional membership. Um, and uh, he's going to do, he's going to assign up enough people to go around them and win that way. Um, you know, it's a bold strategy, a risky strategy. It, it creates all sorts of trouble. Um, you know, should he be successful with caucus and with the party establishment and the party as it exists? Um, so I, I, you know, we'll see, we'll see how he get far he gets with that. Um, but I think, I think actually think the most uh, dangerous is that if he wins, is keeping the party together, having uh, one, if, you, if you, that strategy is successful, keeping the party together is going to be very, very difficult by signing up an entirely new group of people who've never had any uh, connection with the Conservative Party. I, I mean, I, I, I can't fathom that happening. Uh, but yeah, certainly an interesting strategy, one that we haven't seen, and it will be interesting to keep an eye on that. Well, Hamish, I really appreciate all your insights on all these various campaigns, and uh, we, we appreciate you having on your show. We'll have to have you back on later to uh, give an update on these topics. My pleasure. Hey, thank you so much. That's Hamish Marshall. I'm Kenneth Malcolm, and this is The Kenneth Malcolm Show. 